This is Beekeeper Confidential, a show about the curious lives of bees and their beekeepers. I'm your host, Sandy Shaw. Today's guest is a beekeeper and artist whose voice is rooted in ecological and community awareness and exploring our relationships to resources. In all of this, she finds solace with her bees and has moved into a deeper working relationship with them by harvesting hive materials that are used directly in her artwork. Her contributions and accomplishments give her a unique voice in our community, and I am so lucky to have spent a morning with her. Please welcome Janelle Dunlap. Well, I so appreciate you joining me today and and coming on the show. Oh, thank you for inviting me. And so your your stories, I I don't know a lot about it, but I see your artwork and it's amazing. And you do this wonderful job of like capturing the essence of that feeling, like not necessarily a literal interpretation of of what your title is, like the alarm pheromone piece that you did. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like you capture that feeling and that's really, that's a significant talent. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. That's what I love about abstraction is like, I, I'm, I'm really more so interested at least right now in my, um, I guess my, this part of my career of my creative practice in expressing feelings versus like formal objects. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, with me, I know I can get really obsessive with like formal objects and like, and and be more concerned about like the presentation of that formal object whereas like abstraction i can just get lost in the feeling and in the sense that what i'm trying to bring out so yeah well do you want to talk a little bit about your your creative process um i guess well you know i I guess i should break break it down just from the square one is that i'm an encaustic painter um so my process really begins with my relationship with the hive I think it was 2020 was like a really, um, that was like the year it began. I had been, I had a residency with uh, Sweetwater Foundation in Chicago, Illinois. And um, one of the fellow artists there had actually introduced me to encaustic paint. And I was like blown away. And I was like, I can make paint for my beeswax. And I mean, at that time I had been beekeeping for like three years and didn't know that this was like a whole world. But I was like, okay, this is January 2020. So I was like, okay, this definitely has to be a project I pursue this year. Um, and then the pandemic hit. And then I was like, well, great. I guess I have time <laughs> <laughs> to like really dive into this. So I spent the entire like lockdown period, most of spring 2020, harvesting my beeswax and converting it into various versions of like some encaustic paint. So um, I was experimenting with like mixing it with linseed oil. I was experimenting mixing it with resin, resin and linseed oil, um, just to see the consistency that it came out. Um, I was also making encaustic pigment sticks. So it's basically like crayons made from encaustic paint. Oh, okay, okay. But yeah, the, the process um, of in creating encaustic paint is of course like harvesting the propolis. Propolis is really good. And also, really, um, yeah, really oh, good for. Oh, I had no yeah. idea. Yeah, it's a it's the major actually component of my of my series in Cosmic Pink, um, and um, also like so for my honey supers, that's where I, I 
took the the wax from mm-hmm. it's primarily those um honey supers that i wouldn't use anymore or honey supers from um from hives that had absconded like the season before yeah and luckily i just i guess i'm a hoarder in that way i guess most <laughs> artists are you just keep things because you don't know when it's going to come in handy i think beekeepers um, and artists are definitely uh, more <laughs> prone to hoarding their materials yeah yeah exactly this is why i gotta keep it careful eye on that <laughs> but like living with someone else now um but yeah so I, I had harvested that material i got cheesecloth i binded those things together and i boiled them um and uh you wait essentially for it like you kind of like poke, poke and prod the cheesecloth until it seems like it's empty mm-hmm. um, because all of the wax has r- risen to the top of the pot so you let that pot of water cool for a bit and then once it cools, like there's this uh, fine film of wax that rises to the top. And that's like what you harvest. Okay. So um, you might have to do that a few times just to get like dirt or like other elements out. Yeah. So it um, sounds like the wax has to be pretty clean. Yeah, it depends. Like, well, for me, like I, I didn't use a lot of white until I started really developing my caustic paint process so i would just disguise like the not so clean wax and like, my darker colors yeah yeah i'm curious so once you stepped into this realm of doing the encaustic painting with your your own beeswax how did that change your relationship to your art oh that's that's an awesome question because i mean before then i was like primarily working with oil paint i was um, primarily working with like collage and I was also primarily focused on curation of other arts artists work mm-hmm. um, but with encaustic paint um, I really like oh a deep well of gratitude to it because I, it actually was the one thing that pulled me into focusing on my own art wow um, that's powerful yeah. yeah I was always looking out for other people and their creative practice but I wasn't really giving the time that I needed to give to my own practice. So, um, do you think that like the, the preparation of all of the materials, like the process of harvesting the wax and then rendering and then adding the pigments and the oils and just, do you think that that, that part of the practice was the thing that like really connected you to your artwork or your creative process in a way that maybe you didn't have before? It was just really divine timing, I think. You know, yeah, the fact that like we were supposed to be isolated, and you know, during this time, artists are like, "Whew, great!" <laughs> I've been begging for a time like this. It was like, I, I, I swear, like, I know there's not like one artist that I knew of that like heard the word self-isolate and was like, "Oh no." <laughs> so we were all for it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um. So it was is that and like yeah because beekeeping already is like for me a meditative practice anyways you know I don't know if like you do this but like I find myself like whispering to myself or whispering to my bees as I'm doing hive inspections and you don't even realize how weird you look maybe when someone else is like visiting with you but doesn't know about beekeeping you just want to show them and you just kind of go off in your own little world yeah oh yeah the hive inspection but it was I guess the encaustic painting, the process and the actual painting and like the scraping away of the layers has been an added 
added bonus, but it's also added to that meditative practice of beekeeping. It just feels like an extension of it. That makes sense. And it gives me chills. I just got goosebumps because it just, I love it so yeah. much. I think that it, it just, it comes across like how precious the resources are mm -hmm. and the process. But do you think also being able to talk about your bees and some beekeeping also deepens the experience for the viewer? I do try to make sure that um, whenever I'm exhibiting my work that um, the curator also has like a process video um, and they see me working uh, outside with the bees and they see me in my studio and they see me in my kitchen and then they actually see the process of the application. And then I also always make sure that I'm exhibiting my work with at least one of the tools that I use to work with the bees. So I'm either exhibiting with my veil or my hive tool or both or frame. Um, I don't think that the work should be separate from the artwork mm -hmm. because it's, uh, I mean, it's, it's a lot of hard work <laughs> to do that kind of practice. And I think for some people, especially folks who don't really appreciate abstraction is that they think it's like just scribbles mm -hmm. on canvas. And I mean, that's just an assumption that I'm making. I'm, I'm really trying to emphasize that like this has been an entire process from A to Z and like I've been a part of that process and I'm not just someone using a uh, product. I actually also made the product. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and also I think it's important because um, encaustic painting has also like pulled me into the world of environmental art. So I am even consciously more more so now digging into our human relationships with resources mm -hmm. and what does it mean to be a consumer and what does it mean to be a producer and like and where are we in i guess this uh, you know this anthro uh, anthropocentric era where we are in in, in, in society where like now we're experiencing climate change because there's too many of us consuming and not enough, enough of us sustainably producing mm -hmm. so i'm um yeah, it's definitely opened my eyes to seeing just my engagement with natural resources and resources in general yeah. a little more consciously. I, and this is just a total off off the main topic statement, but um, the holidays, I cringe at how much waste our own household creates to celebrate a holiday you know, like Christmas right. or, or even Thanksgiving where we have these like really deep traditions that are expected. Right. But it requires so much to make those things happen. And especially right. in a time where people aren't feeling safe going out shopping and they're having everything delivered to the house, just all of the packaging alone. Mm -hmm. yeah. It sort of yeah. is like, what is it going to take to get a cultural shift so we can realize and again, this is like so off topic and I probably won't air this part like, but what is it going to take to get people to realize we don't need all of this stuff to enjoy yeah. a holiday or to enjoy that time together? Yeah, I mean, I think it's related, you know, because I mean, when you think about the practice of the hive, there is no waste. You know, everything's put to use, um, but everything there is no waste because they don't because honeybees don't believe in excess. You know, they might have an excess of honey. Honey super is for the winter, but like they use all that. I've and actually never thought about it in that way of like them not believing in excess. 
Yeah. But I, I like that perspective. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's important. And, and I think that's kind of where, um, it's not kind of where it is the direction I went to, I went through with like processing the relationship between like what, I, what between honeybees and like in bees in general and just um, in humans um, with, with like my thesis lessons from the hive. I was talking about abstract art as a critical response in the age of climate change. And one of the um, conclusions I came to is like we as humans have to start start observing nature and taking cue from nature and stop assuming that we have all the answers you know so it's important that we kind of flip the script and stop having like this human-centric experience mm -hmm. and understand that like a lot of the issues that we're facing could be resolved if we took on the perspective or the behavior of non-human species and honeybees are the most i think perfect example of that yeah 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 no they are um what was it like to be able to bring in your expertise and your love for beekeeping and your artwork into a thesis? Honestly, like it was not easy. Like it was because I was like, what am I going to write a thesis on? What am I, what is my artwork going to focus on? It was right in front of my face. <laughs> I, couldn't, I couldn't see it. And it had to be, I think it was like my, um, yeah, my program director, she finally pulled it out of me. Um, she was like, yeah, so like, I just love this conversation you're having about bees. And I was like, oh yeah, like I am talking about bees. I guess uh, my thesis is gonna be on bees and then just figuring out how to tie that in. It was really just a series of like accidental inspirations. I took a class called Landscapes of Neoliberalism. Um, and that's when I was introduced to Naomi Klein's work, the, um, the shock doctrine. Uh, and she's she was talking about disaster capitalism and uh -huh. how essentially like nations or multi multinational corporations benefit from like crises so sometimes they invent crises in order to like really rack, rack in on the on that um so that had me that also inspired me to think about like how bees respond to crises and like you know what is what is is this our um, colony collapse disorder, mm -hmm, you know, this mm -hmm. era that we're going through and like, how can I like align the knowledge that they have when they need to swarm and, yeah. you know, apply it to our, and our also humans. like in alignment, I think honeybees tend to work together when there's a crisis. Right. That's right. something we all need to learn. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that's what I also realized is like hive mind isn't can't necessarily that's the one thing i think that was like the the breaking point is like as humans we can't necessarily adopt hive mind as much as like as important as that is like i don't know it, it seems as if it, it would have to be continuously i from what i'm seeing it would have to be something even more greater than what we're experiencing now in order for us to adopt hive mind um, <laughs> and that's hard to imagine. Uh, Alien. <laughs> yeah. Aliens or, yeah, like the, the end of the world, like climate change, tsunamis and earthquakes all happen all at once. Yeah. Well, yeah. I look at 
I look at my kids, you know, they're 11 and 12, and I just wonder, you know, they've already experienced way more in their lifetimes than I did growing up. And I just wonder, like, what is what is it going to be like them for the rest of their lives? Yeah. What more? <laughs> <laughs> it's always aliens. That's what mm-hmm. I always refer to. And that's like, it's got to be that. Will you share about how you first got curious about bees and beekeeping? Sure, sure. So there's kind of like a two-pronged story to this. Um, so initially, I generally I was be I was not beekeeping. I was a I was managing community gardens in Chicago and in Charlotte, North Carolina, and I did that for six years. And I think I just kind of got burnt out. Um, because I realized that there was like a, a cultural disconnect. It was, I worked in non, the nonprofit industry for like 10 years. And I noticed, I, I felt like anytime primarily like white communities wanted to do something for a more disadvantaged community or community of color, I was, they were always resorting. It was like, it, it was so weird. It's such a weird period between 2010 and 2016 because everyone's solution was community gardens. And I was like, well, that's not really resolving the food desert crisis that these neighborhoods have because it's a cultural shift. People in general have to get out of the habit of like seeking fast food or processed food for their nutrition, like because you can't just put a seed in the ground and then hope that it grows and it does. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's that's a really powerful thing, too, because when you talk about, you know, people so many of them grew up with fast food yeah and it's so convenient and accessible and maybe they haven't learned how to cook yeah because that's just the that's that's the diet right right and that was I guess my frustration with like wealthier communities assuming that people had all the tools they needed even if you built it even if you tilled the land and put the soil there every week or whatever that it would just happen. Um, but I, I enjoyed doing that community gardening, but I, I guess at a certain point I just got burnt out with it. Um, even when I focused on my own practice of community gardening. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I was thinking about how to still, I still wanted to engage the earth. I still wanted to do something to support plant yeah. growth. Um, I'm an earth sign, I'm a tourist. So I'm always going to do something connected to the, to the earth, to the practice. Um, and then I think whenever people lack inspiration, we should think back to the moments in our childhood that inspired us or things that stuck with us. Mm. And for me, it was the Wu-Tang Clan. <laughs> it was their music video, Triumph. And um, it was a combination of that music video and me remembering um, the news stories of the Africanized killer bees in like the early 90s. So I'm in my mid 30s. So like I was like, you know, I was fresh online. I was like, you know, yeah. first or second grade. And I remember seeing these news stories and hearing the newscasters talk about Africanized killer bees. And I just really didn't like the tone that they were using. Like, cause it seemed like they were criminalizing these bees. And I was like, but they're bees. Like, <laughs> like it's like, I understand they were wild and uncontrolled. But I just saw the kind of the alignment between how they would talk about any black person that was featured in the news or most black people who are featured in the news and these killer bees. So I kind of, I think I started to develop some 
cultural and political slash social awareness around that age. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I saw the Triumph video years later, I was 11 years old and I was like, oh my God, they finally like, someone responded to that. I didn't know someone had was clever enough to respond to that. Cause of course I didn't have tools at that time. They did a parody of that news clip where the members of the Wu-Tang Clan, it's like 11 of them, they became the Africanized killer bees. And they were just like, you know, rapping and like they were in this, and they were doing swarms all across the boroughs of New York City. And (laughs) yeah, and it was the first time I noticed um, art with a political message. So um, I took that moment of inspiration, I guess I, I, I guess when I was reflecting on how do I continue working with the earth, it was really those two things combined that inspired where wow. I am now. Have you reached out to the Wu-Tang Clan to tell them <laughs> this story? Um, I, I talked to like a manager, or an ex-manager from back in the day. My mom was a friend friend of his, but, and I haven't heard back anything, but yeah. Okay, yeah. we got to tag them on social okay. media. Yes, definitely, Wu-Tang forever. Yes. <laughs> Black Wu-Tack is Queen B's Easter yeah yeah definitely but yeah like i in that regards um i I always share and i was like you know a lot lot of people have a lot to say about hip-hop but i will say that like in that instance that that example like hip-hop has definitely changed my life for the better because it's given me some sense of direction yeah i have a purpose now that i know is rooted from hip hop culture, but like I'm taking it so much further than just hip hop. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that's kind of like what you're supposed to get out of, out of any art practice. It's supposed to enrich your life. It's supposed to like inspire you to go, uh, go full on with like whatever direction you're inspired with. And I think that that's also a common theme with so many beekeepers that I've talked with. Mm -hmm. Like they, they get their hands on a hive and then there's no stopping them because they want to, you know, tell everybody about bees. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So yeah, that's, um, well, yeah, I guess that's kind of where I am now. It's like, I, I definitely have like a tailored audience that I'm trying to engage with my work. Um, so I have a hive, I have two hives on the campus of an HBCU, but I've been really trying to grow that site, that apiary for years, but I'm um, I'm waiting for grant funding to to um, apprentice like four other beekeepers so that we can grow that site. Wow. Um, yeah, students who go to that school because um, it's for me it's really important. Um, I noticed that in my practice of beekeeping, I've picked up on a couple of like social cues and like and cultural cues that have indicated to me that like within the African-American community, we've become very um, distanced from nature. And it's even like led to like, just like nature deficit disorder. Like we just don't think that we belong in the same space as, you know, other non-human beings. Um, And I think it has a lot to do with like urbanization and just the assumption that removal from land or doing anything with agriculture related means that you're progressing in life, but you're advancing. Mm-hmm. If you sit behind an office all day, you, and if you don't work with your hands, that means like you're smart or something. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So it's a societal shift. I'm, I'm just, 
I'm really interested in pursuing is like shifting our perspectives of like what trade work is or what agricultural work is. So I also have um, two hives on the site of a, um, a small farm in Indian Trail, North Carolina. So one of my mentees, um, Bernard Singleton, he managed that. He's a black farmer. He manages that site. But yeah, we're, we're both kind of like always talking about like how do we get people really to reestablish their relationship with the land and like and get back to nature. Mm-hmm. And and in a way that's accessible. Yeah. I, I yeah. And, you know, I'm speaking from this seat, but it just seems like the accessibility is is such a hurdle. And yeah. even, you know, when you were talking about running the community gardens, it's one thing to set the garden, but then, how you know, you have to train people how to take care of it. And yeah. that doesn't just happen overnight. No, no, not at all. Um, yeah, and you, you said accessibility, and I remembered, like, how expensive beekeeping can be, especially when you're first starting out, you know. So it's it's important for people to understand and think that, like, to run with the basics, you know, have the basics and, and then expand and still then try to develop. But like one thing I'm also really annoyed by with like people who are interested in beekeeping is that they think about the honey first. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's not about the honey, you know, the honey is a byproduct. I think they um, learn pretty yeah. fast that there's, you yeah. know, <laughs> there's not just gallons and gallons of honey happening every year it's it's so much work and I'm seeing here and you know in Portland you know this last bee season was hard and these hives were drier than I've ever seen because we've we've had drought and some really extreme um heat events that just killed blooms and um the colony can survive through some of that but it's like they did not have anywhere close to the amount of food that they normally would and there's just so much care involved and I think that's something that people when they're curious about bees or getting into it they need to talk with experienced beekeepers so they have an understanding of like what all is involved and the reality is you become a not just a beekeeper, but a mite manager. Right. Yeah. Oh my gosh. That's like the most unappealing hobby. Like, oh yeah, I've managed varroa mites. Yeah, varroa <laughs> mites and uh, the hive beetles. Oh yeah, we don't have very many here, but I, okay. I have hive beetles. Okay. I don't know. It must be a southeastern issue because like even when I was like managing or helping my mentor manage hives in Chicago, I never saw as many hive beetles as I do in North Carolina. Oh. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. It's it's super annoying. Um and the traps they kind of help, but you have to put like twelve in there just to like <laughs> get to the numbers. Oh my goodness. Down. I'm I'm like horrified if I see like four or five of them in a hive. No, no. Like it's because all of my hives, except for the farm hives, have been near forested areas. Oh, and I think that's the issue I'm having. Yeah, yeah. So, but yeah, it's just folks thinking about the honey first. Like I don't even like follow up with them. As you know, with like we might do one hive inspection together, but it's like I don't expect you to like really be invested because yeah. I don't know. Maybe 
maybe it's like a very capitalist mindset and like we all have that ingrained in us somewhere but like the honey really is the last thing that is i guess at the top of a beekeeper's mind because yeah. you have to go through so many hurdles just it's, to get it. <laughs> it's almost like um there's an assumption that the bees have to earn their keep and they're going to hmm. earn it by giving you honey but that's such a strange mentality because the bees aren't asking to be put here in this hive in your backyard. Right, right. You're the one creating the space for them. Yeah, I, exactly. And, and I think that's also what I really appreciate. I have a, I have a couple of beekeeping mentors and one of them is Thad Smith in Chicago, Illinois. He manages, he's the director of um, Westside Bee Boys. And um, he's a small business um small businessman that does like community education on beekeeping um but specifically his focus has shifted on native bee populations mm -hmm. and he's just whenever i call him and talk to him about any honeybee related business he's like but we need to think about the native bees <laughs> um because i mean it's true because like we we've, i've i've read all these articles about like the beekeeping trend and like how it's affected like native bee populations and like like it also makes me a bit nervous about wanting to pull pe more people in to mm -hmm. this to this practice because like how do I know that like I'm not contributing to that like instability that's that's in this ecosystem you know native bees are even more responsible for the pollination of our crops um, we might are of our plants in general, you know, we always associate honeybees, I think, with agricultural crops. Yeah. Not understanding that native bees play an important, important role in like pollinating all the other crops that we don't necessarily consume. So he's the one that's always got me thinking like, you know, about the direction that we are as a, that we're in as a beekeeping community now. Mm -hmm. like, and we have to like balance our practice with like supporting native bee populations and, you know, continuing our work in honeybee cultivation. Yeah. And I think beekeepers are really good at the outreach aspect of like telling mm. people because it's, you know, it's our passion and we love talking about bees. And sometimes I think that in a roundabout way, um, the outreach and the awareness that we're bringing to bees in general yeah is helping non-beekeepers maybe be a little more aware of things that they can do to help bee populations yeah. but i agree there is and it's happening here in oregon too there's a like a native bee um, program that's run out of the oregon state university and they're training citizens to catch and identify different native bee species because they realize we don't actually have a catalog of what all of the native bees in this state are. And so mm -hmm. they're training all these people. And I've been to some of the trainings and they're not easy. They're like extremely mm -hmm. detailed stuff. And there's strict protocol for labeling and like how you store the specimen. But what they wanna do is they wanna get a baseline of what are our native bee populations like now so they can start tracking it year after year to see how the populations are responding to the different environmental pressures, uh, mm -hmm. chemical pressures. And uh, I, I think it's a pretty cool program, but it sounds like that's something that's starting to spread a little bit 
more and more people are being interested in that. Yeah, I I don't know. I think it's still pretty much niche um, community right now because yeah. like my, my mentor in Chicago is the only one I hear talk about native bees. Wow. Well, yeah. he's he's going to be the, the trendsetter for the East Coast. Yeah. Yeah, hopefully. Hopefully. Well, he's doing it in the Midwest. I got to figure out who... Because I don't know. I really don't want to do that work. But if I have to... I, <laughs> I know. I know. Um, yeah. yeah. I mean there are a lot of people involved in the designing and the running of this program. Mm. But the, the response from the community has been huge. There's a waiting list to get into the, uh, they call that's... it the, the master melatology program. And it's melatology. Yeah. Wow. So it's a little what... bit like the master gardener program or the master beekeeper program, but it's all in native bees. Wow, so yeah. melatology is the study of native bees. Okay. Yeah, or just bee, all bee species in general. Oh, okay, nice. Yeah. Nice, yeah. okay. <laughs> Learn something. No, no, I that. no that's great news. Because Janelle recently moved to Atlanta, Georgia, I just had to tell her about one of our favorite guests, Julia Mahood. In one of Julia's episodes, she shares about her work with the women at Arundel Prison and how participating in a beekeeping program has had a positive impact on their lives. And then Janelle shared about her mentor, whose life course has been directly impacted by such programs. Actually, that's how my mentor in Chicago got started. He's like a formerly incarcerated person. So when he got out, he was put into, well, yeah, I guess when it was while he was in prison, he was introduced to beekeeping. So when he came out, he wanted to continue that work. But I just thought that was kind of like a beautiful way of, because for him, he said it gave him like different a different purpose and redirection in life. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, and, yeah. yeah and, and, I don't know if you've like read some of the stories about some of the, the veterans affairs hospitals that have started to introduce beekeeping to their patients as well to like help with PTSD. But, you know, beekeeping really is this, this, this practice that somehow opens up a portal in people and like, it just shifts everything. So you know, if they didn't have like a trade or a skill or practice that they felt like they could share with the world before they definitely get it. Like once they're exposed to the, to this practice, it's sort of like, um, there's several benefits to that. So not only is it an outlet to connect with their community that's like incredibly positive and uplifting, but it also is like the therapeutic benefits of working with bees, just having that yeah. time and like that stillness and that connectivity to a, a colony of stinging insects. Bees <laughs> can be so misunderstood. And yeah, I, I feel like once a person gains that like intimate connectivity they learn to speak the language with the bees like you said that that changes something in them it does and i always find my community where i find like the hives so <laughs> yeah still have still um good friends with people in denver when i lived there for a summer um of course the stuff I, I found my creative community through beekeeping in chicago um charlotte was like an, I had already had had established a community in Charlotte, but I think beekeeping, it helped it grow. And it also helped me create like a signature mark in, mm -hmm. in the community there. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm, I'm, I'm looking to do, you know, something similar with Atlanta. Um, 
and just see where it goes. Yeah. I have so much enjoyed our conversation today. Awesome. I really appreciate that. Thank you so much for reaching out to me. Yeah. To learn more about Janelle, you can find her online at JanelleDunlap.com. I'll also be including links to that and her social media on BeekeeperConfidential.com. Until next time, may the buzz be with you. Beekeeper Confidential is written and produced by Mandy Shaw.